Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Phil London. We're at uh, Nicholson Library, Linfield University. It's January 31st, 2024. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. And the first question is why wine? Well, wine is a really great beverage that I enjoy with food. And when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career during and after college, I was working in a restaurant at the time and really enjoyed serving wine and talking to people about it. I'll explain a little bit of that in detail as we go. But I really thought, hey, this would be a cool thing to explore as a career. Uh, unrelated to my major of history. Uh, so I was living in Santa Cruz and attending UC Santa Cruz, and I decided right after graduating that I wanted to continue working at the restaurant where I had been and uh, do a sommelier program so I could learn a little bit more of the, the details and intricacies of the world of wine. And then after finishing the really basic level one master sommelier course, I decided I wanted to go travel a little bit and go to Europe where I had never been before and see what they're doing over there because I had just been reading about it in textbooks and studying about it for about a month straight when I wasn't working or in school. And so I did. I graduated college and I went over. I bought a ticket to Rome, flew in, took a long wandering train trip to Barcelona where I met a friend of mine and just tried to visit wine regions the entire way. It took me a few weeks to make my way over and it was great and came back and was kind of thirsty for it. So I decided to look for a job and just try this out and see where it goes. So I uh, got back to Santa Cruz without a real hard plan and found a wine website called Wine Jobs where they posted a bunch of different job listings in the Santa Cruz mountains. It's a very small wine region, so there aren't many, but I was looking on there and there was a small winery up in the mountains that needed a tasting room person. So I said, well, I think I'm qualified for this. I just did a sommelier thing and I've been working in a restaurant, talking to people about wine when they were coming in and yeah, I'm gonna give this a try. So I went and I started working there for about a week and then I started looking at wine jobs again and saw there's a bunch of job listings in Napa for people who wanna go work a harvest. And at this point it was mid-summer, so a lot of jobs had already been taken and I didn't really have like a winery I was seeking to go work at. I was still just very much feeling my way out and I saw a listing for Etude Winery in Carneros and they had uh, an interesting sounding internship for someone totally unexperienced who was going to go and drive around to a bunch of their vineyards that they farm and get grapes from in Carneros and a few different sites in the Napa Valley and uh, and then shift into the winery about midway through harvest once most of the, the picks were done. So I just kind of applied for that and thought, yeah, maybe let's, let's see if I get a job there. And uh, I don't know, I'll have to bail on this tasting room thing, but I'm sure it'll be there for me after harvest if I want it. And uh, I was kind of just flying by the seat of my pants. So I shot my resume over. Uh, pretty unembellished actually. <laughs> and uh, got a phone call an hour later from the assistant winemaker who was like, 
this is a unique position. We had this job filled months ago, but actually uh, someone just backed out of it this morning. So I put the posting up, your resume sounds interesting. Can you come up to Napa and talk to me? And I was like, well, it's you know Friday and uh, I guess I could come up like maybe the beginning of next week. And so he said, well, could you come up this afternoon? I'm really in a bind here. And I was like, okay, when does the job start per chance? And he goes, oh, like next Monday. So if you did get it, which it sounds like you're my big lead right now, uh, we'd have to have you up here and get you a place to live really quick. So I kind of looked at my life, talked to my boss at the winery where I was you know, working a couple days a week in the tasting room, and he was just like, you know what, you need to do that. Just, just do it, go up, see what he has to say. If it doesn't sound weird, take the job. Come talk to me afterward. And so <laughs> I just hopped in my car and drove to Napa and uh, went up there and met with Rob, the assistant winemaker at the time, and met with John Priest, who had been working there forever, and uh, he and Rob showed me around, and it was just big fancy winery, and I really hadn't even set foot in more than a couple, only as a, a visitor, as a tourist, really, and it just seemed so shiny and cool and like something that I could really find myself getting interested in, and so I, I took the job. I packed up all my stuff, paid rent a couple months ahead of time for my place in Santa Cruz, Thankfully found someone to sublet it, so I didn't throw that money away. And uh, yeah, then I, I moved to Napa for a couple months and, and worked harvest. And I worked harder than I think I'd ever worked up to that point in my life. We were working, you know, 14 hour days, 16 hour days sometimes. And it was hard, but it was really enjoyable. I was working with a bunch of people who were all about my same age and experience level. Some had been in the industry for a few harvests. A lot of us were all there for our first harvest together. and. And it was neat, and I got to go into a laboratory and work in chemistry and around equipment that I hadn't seen since really high school, because as a history major in college, you don't spend a lot of time in science labs. So yeah, I'd you know, done a little bit of that, but not much, and, and I loved it, and it was really cool. I got to go see some awesome vineyards all around Napa and uh, the estate vineyard that they farm on the west side of Carneros, and, we were taking yield estimates and eventually maturity samples and doing pressure bomb testing and it was really neat. And then got about halfway through harvest and they asked me to come and work in the winery. And so, yeah, we were mainly just sorting grapes. That was, that was my main gig. And uh, after that, digging out tanks, but also learning about how fermentations work and uh, cap management. And they were using pretty large pumps and uh, these really neat pneumatic punch down tools, which are fixed above. Uh, they have a really big bank of like eight ton fermenters in that winery. And so it was neat to see how everything is done at scale and, and get my hands on it. And it was uh, a lot of fun. And so I think after that, I was, I was sold. I, I knew it would mean I'd probably have to travel around a little bit. And after talking to the people I was working with, travel, which sounded awesome. and see where, where I could work a harvest here or there, because it seemed like uh, that was really the way you get a toehold in the industry, especially not coming from a, like a hard science background. Mm -hmm. And so those are all things that I later learned you know, as I, I started to get into my career. But yeah, at the time, I, I thought it would be really fascinating. So as far as why wine goes, that's kind of how I found my way into it as a career. And on a more personal level, I, I've really enjoyed learning about it and drinking it and how it pairs with food.
So let's back up for a moment and talk about, you mentioned kind of the initial interest coming from working in restaurants and sort of discovering it there. So tell me about discovering it from that side as a consumer and as a, and as a seller of wine. Um, how did you sort of first learn wine and what were some of the sort of the, the big moments for you or the big excitements for you that kind of drove you forward? Yeah, so uh, my parents weren't really big drinkers. Wine wasn't often on the dinner table. Um, so I think maybe one of the, the first times it really sticks out in my mind that wine was uh, around was, was working in a restaurant and having to memorize some of the names on a, a wine list. And you know, I worked at a restaurant down the street from my house. It was a neighborhood style Italian joint. And they didn't have anything fancy, but you know, learning like, hey, Chianti is different than uh, Suave. And this is why, well, one's red and one's white. And this is kind of how they taste. And I would chat with the bartenders and uh, yeah, and that was, that was the, the fundamental basis of learning about it. And then I remember, oh, maybe working there for a few months when a buddy of mine's dad, who had a, a lot of friends who were very into wine, he was having a party and needed help uh, to, I think they had like 30 or 40 people there, and he just needed help having people, you know, glasses filled and said to me, hey, Phil, why don't you come on over and I'll just uh, pay for a couple hours and you can help me pour wine. And I think I was like 18 at the time, so you know, take that for what you will, but uh, I thought it was a blast, and he didn't have like particularly intended uh, wines that he was gonna pour, so he just kinda went to the store, and they bought him a box of uh, white wine, a box of red wine, and uh, so we were pouring some, I, I remember the wines actually, a Jadot Chablis as a white wine, and I would just walk around and chat with all the guests and friends of the family, a lot of whom I already knew, and just uh, help them keep their glasses topped up, and. Uh, if they wanted red wine, uh, I think he was pouring some George de Boeuf, which uh, I think even back then was about like four bucks a bottle. And I remember smelling it and tasting it and thinking like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. Like, I think I like what we have at the restaurant a little bit better, but everybody here seems to be enjoying it. So yeah, it's, it's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I don't think I'll forget that because it, it really was something where outside of just uh, telling people what I was trying to sell them about the wine. I, I was paying attention to what was on the labels and what was in the glasses. And I remember going home and uh, it, you know, the internet was really just becoming a thing in the early 2000s and uh, especially wine websites where I could like find approachable ways <laughs> online to learn about the kind of stuff that I was curious about, let alone like, hey, what's in this bottle of Chablis? And finding out, oh, Chardonnay. And these are the things that Chardonnay is supposed to taste like when it's from this region. And, it, that, that was maybe like the point at which it really first piqued my curiosity. Yeah, uh, from a consumer standpoint, not just from selling it in the restaurant. And then, yeah, from there I uh, went to college. Well, I, I actually first moved out to San Francisco and uh, lived there and became a state resident of California and then transferred to UC Santa Cruz to finish up my degree quickly. Uh, but I had a roommate in San Francisco who was working in fine dining and he was going through the Court of Master Sommeliers process. I think he had just finished his level two while we were living together. And uh, so he was just always pouring wine and studying it and blind tasting. And, you know, I'd come home from work and sort of see him just sitting in front of like six bottles of wine with a couple of people. And there's maybe a glass drinking out of each of them. And yeah, then he'd sit down with me and just chat about it and tell me about everything he was learning. And so it really started to kind of sink in like, hey, this is, this is a neat thing that people, it's a whole niche, a whole career, a whole industry that, that is out there. And uh, it was fun. It was fun really starting to see that side of things. And 
it wasn't until, yeah, years later as I was finishing up college where I started to think about it for myself, where it kind of always just been hovering around, but never something I had I really focused in on. And it was at that point where, yeah, like I said earlier, I decided to go work a harvest. And, and then, uh, yeah, kind of went off from there. What prompted you to kind of pursue sommelier training of your own? Mainly just knowing someone who had done it. Yeah, and, and working in wine service and just, you know, to pay the bills working in the restaurant. But then I realized, like, oh, this is actually a way I can add a little bit to each check and feel, get a little bit bigger tip. And, yeah, you know, I enjoy studying things and focusing in on all these crazy maps uh, that I saw in some of the sommelier books. And I've always just enjoyed studying geography and maps. And God, I remember looking at this one map of the wine regions around central Tuscany and seeing how they all overlay and it was just wild with all the different colors and it looked like a spaghetti junction of wine regions and just thinking how cool it was and how you know when you zoom in on it there's actually like pretty big areas on what seems like a small piece of paper and there's so many vineyards packed into these little tiny nicks nooks and on the map and uh, yeah I later went on and saw them and it was very neat. So you talked about your first harvest experience and, and it sounds like a fairly common story for us, intense, hard, but enjoyable. So kind of as you're wrapping up that, that sort of harvest internship experience, what are you, what were you thinking about at that point as either next step or like long-term goal when it came to wine? Yeah, it was, I think I really enjoyed this and it was a lot of fun, but it was one of the hardest things I'd done to that point, especially professionally. And uh, so I took a little bit of time and thought about whether or not I wanted to do that again. And my inclination was, I'm interested in this, so I want to give it a try, and I want to at least do a few harvests, because if this is something I want to do, then uh, I want to make sure I have a, a breadth of experience to at least make an informed decision about it. Um, but if it's not, you know, like, well, now's a good time to get out. <laughs> so I thought about it for a couple weeks and thought, you know what, I actually really did enjoy this, so I'm going to apply for another harvest next year, or maybe go to the Southern Hemisphere. It's a little late to get a job at that point, uh, and I wasn't prepared to move. So uh, yeah, I just... Uh, Went back to Santa Cruz and started looking for jobs for the following year, and that was when I was starting to learn about some of the really cool wineries around the Santa Cruz Mountains, like Mount Eden and Ridge Vineyards, which have huge, long histories that are really important to the industry nationwide, I would say. And, uh, and then I heard about a little place called Reese Vineyards, which is a really high-end Pinot Noir producer. And I thought I knew known most of the wineries in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but I'd never heard anything about this place. And then I talked to a friend, and they knew a lot about the wine in the area, and she was just like, no, that place is making really interesting, really thoughtful wines, and they're doing it without limits and at a really high level. And so I applied for a harvest job there. And then went up, had an interview. I showed up there at this place. You have to wind way up into the mountains. It's about an hour almost from Santa Cruz driving on really windy, steep roads. And pull up to one of the highest points in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is where they are. I think they're almost 3,000 feet. And pulled up onto a ridgeline, up a fancy-looking driveway with a big gate into a parking lot that looks right out over the San Jose and the southern San Francisco Bay. And from this parking lot, you can see Mount Eden to one side and Ridge Vineyards right across the canyon. And I thought, wow, this is beautiful. And I look over and there's a house that looks like a castle with a literal turret on it. 
I was like, this is wild. I got to go inside this place. I never even heard about it. Apparently, they're making great wine. Like, where do I even go? And I turn around, and there's just a giant door in the ground, which leads to this massive cave. So I went down there, and uh, I met with the winemaking staff, and they were cool. They were like three guys who just kind of hang out in a cave and talk about wine all day. And I thought, oh, you know what? I really want to work here. And they offered me a job to go work a harvest, and, uh, and so I took it. So. Yeah, I started on there in the fall of 2011, and that was then I was working a lot as well, but really, really being focused on high quality production. It was a much smaller scale than what I was doing in Napa, and really hands-on. Everything was being fermented in one-ton fermenters, and we would do pijage with our feet, and you know, pour over with buckets at a time just to keep the caps wet, and. It was a really fancy winery with uh, tank controllers on all these one-ton tanks for heated and cooled jackets. And uh, everyone who was working there had a firm science background and could answer any possible question I had. And they were all really into Burgundy. I'm sure still are. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and that was when I started thinking, man, they can make a career like this? I think I can make a career in wine. If it's even half as cool as this, then <laughs> sign me up. And, and that was really what sold me. It was a really enlightening harvest and, and really a lot of fun to, to work there. You mentioned the, the difference in size and sort of size and scale from, from your first internship. What was different about sort of the day-to-day -day work for you? Did you feel, were, were the tasks different? Was your sort of involvement different in any way? Oh, definitely. So going from working up in Napa where, you know, you go through a corporate week-long training, and then at the end they hand you a reflective vest, and you have to wear that every day when you're, you're on the job. And they're a medium-sized winery, you know, I think they're making 40 or 50,000 cases at the time. And uh, going from that to uh, living on site in that castle house, walking down, all three of us interns, we lived there in like a little refurbished basement in this crazy house that no one else was living in at the time. And, you know, we'd walk 30 feet to the entrance to this cave and they just kind of stocked the fridge with beer and food and they had a nice kitchen in there and could cook lunches for each other. And it was really intense. We just kind of talked about wine all the time. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And so there, that year, I think we made about 80 tons overall, received it, processed it, and it was very slow. Now, as I said, we were fermenting one ton at a time, and so moving these little tanks around, and it's a, a lot of work getting everything prepared for it, and then sorting as we went, and all of the, the various fermentation managements that were going on, because you know, even though it was only 80 tons, we had 80 fermenters, and so it was a lot of logistics. Uh, yeah, and it was something that, that they were pretty good about warning us about, and thankfully I was working with a couple other people who had a lot more experience than I did as the other interns, and. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I got to learn from them and the other winemakers, and yeah, it, it was great. So if coming out of that you felt like there was a career in this for you, did you have a thought over what that career would look like, what you, what you would do, what kind of role you would play? You know, at that point I just thought, I'm going to have to go back to school and learn how to be a winemaker and learn about some hard chemistry and <laughs> spend some time in a lab. and. Uh, they were very encouraging there at Reese, and I was asking a lot of questions, and I remember they had a, a FOSS 
uh, wine analyzer, which is a pretty expensive and fancy piece of machinery. And I saw that and was like, I want to figure out how this works. It's amazing. It can tell us everything we need to know. And it's just a box with a probe on it. Like, this is really cool. And uh, so I, I would spend a lot of time trying to work my way into the tiny lab room there and pick Jeff's brain. Uh, Jeff Brinkman is the winemaker. And yeah, they're all incredibly intelligent people and really friendly and funny. And so. Uh, it was great to be able to see what suggestions they had for me. And, and one of them was that, yeah, go back, do that if, if that's what you want to do. If you like hard science, if you like to be in a lab and you, you enjoy like, academia, do it. You can also learn this on the job, though. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Mainly read a lot and ask me and anyone like me as many questions as you can think of. Find a mentor. They'll train you. And uh, that's the route I ended up taking, mainly because the biggest piece of advice that they gave me is go overseas. Work a harvest somewhere else. So after I wrapped up harvest there, I started looking around the southern hemisphere. And I had always wanted to go to New Zealand. I had a friend in college who had lived down there for a year and raved about it and said how cool it was. And when I was working at Reese, one of the, the guys who was the permanent staff and really assistant winemaker, he had been down there and worked a harvest and told me all these cool tales he had about buying a van and driving around and just kind of living out of that for half a year. And, so I ended up doing the same. I actually just came off of that harvest and applied for literally every single job I could find in New Zealand on the internet. And uh, I didn't get called back from any of them. I had two years of experience, two harvests of experience. And uh, you know the logistics, I think, of getting down there and kind of just emailing cold my resume to everyone was, was pretty hard. And then finally, I was just visiting some family around Christmas time back east. And, uh, and then I got a call one day from a foreign, <laughs> uh, a foreign exchange. And it was a uh, cellar master at this massive factory winery. Uh, and it was in Hawke's Bay in New Zealand. And I uh, said, yeah, I've taken a look at your resume. And uh, do you have some time for me to chat with you and maybe do a formal interview? And so yeah, we just talked for a few minutes. And I think it was like 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> he didn't really do the conversion of the time zone. And uh, yeah, so I just took a little bit of time to chat with him. And he was like, well, you know what? I don't think we even need to do an interview. You sound like you're cool enough. There's going to be a lot of people working here. You're going to be one of a big team. So yeah, if we can get along in person as well as we have in the last 20 minutes on the phone, the job's yours. Uh, I'll take care of whatever kind of paperwork on my end you need for immigration. But I think it's mainly just like a, a promise of employment when you get here. Go through all the steps. Uh, I don't work for immigration. But if you have any questions, I can try and help you navigate the process, because I do this every year. And so uh, thankfully, New Zealand has their stuff together. And it was really easy to just go and get a working tourist visa there. So yeah, I went, uh, went down to New Zealand. And I worked for the largest winery in Hawke's Bay. And I lived in a little town called Napier. And actually, a little city. It's probably maybe twice the size of McMinnville. A really cool town. And uh, yeah, worked a shift job with a bunch of blue-collar Kiwis at a, a winery which crushes about 10,000 tons. And they had huge presses and tipping tanks and all sorts of fermentation tools, which I had never heard of before or seen on that scale. I mean, like an 80-ton press on rails that you had to use a remote control to move. It was nuts and looked actually really scary and dangerous. And, you know, I thought the place I worked in Napa was a big scale. And this was like oh, an order of magnitude bigger than that. Yeah, it, it was really neat. And uh, yeah, so I went down there on, on that advice to go work abroad. And, and it, was, it was great. I bought a van. 
on Eric's advice and uh, traveled around. And so, yeah, like I had done in Europe the year before where I went and tried to visit as many wine regions as I could on a, on a route that I had kind of pre-planned, I did the same in New Zealand and I was just emailing people the whole time leading up to it when I got there to try and fill out a list of places to visit and people to talk to while I was there and I was way more successful in New Zealand. Mainly the language barrier uh, was non-existent and that, that was a good thing. So. I uh, was able to go and talk to one of the, the coolest viticulturists I had met up to that point, uh, this man named Gareth King, and he was uh, working at Felton Road, and he was doing really cool stuff with biodynamics. And I, I really enjoyed it. He just on a whim invited me down there after I emailed to see if I could check out the vineyard one time while I'm driving around New Zealand in my van. And uh, yeah, he took about half his day to just show me around and show me how they sort compost and how they pack it in horns and bury it in the ground. And I had so many questions. In fact, I left there with more questions than I had coming in. And I remember just emailing him later. And he was such a cool guy. And someone I was able to just chat with and, and really see how their, or at least maybe hope to get a glimpse of like how their mind works. And, and what he was doing was just so connected to that site and, and those vines. And he seemed like he was really good at what he was doing. And that was really inspirational. Yeah, it's funny how in just small snippets you can find uh, well, really inspiring interactions with others. And so that was a, a highlight of my trip down there for sure. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a great time. I traveled all around, like I said, and, uh, and then tried to just soak in as much of that country's wine scene as I could while I was down there. And I think after that, I, I was sold. I was just like, you know what? This is awesome. I'm going to come back. I got to start looking for a full-time job, which in my mind was going to be the next step. I, I really enjoyed sort of traveling, harvesting, and thought I could make this probably go on forever, but this isn't, this isn't sustainable. I don't know how I'm going to do it financially. <laughs> or I also don't think I would have stamina after a few years. Like, this is going to get tiring. So yeah, I uh, was sitting in my, in my room in the place I had rented in New Zealand towards the end of harvest that year. And I was looking at where I thought I wanted to work. And obviously, Santa Cruz would be a great choice because I was really really high on the wines from that region, especially after working at Reese and seeing what the potential was there and trying to get a job uh, somewhere in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And so uh, I emailed uh, Ridge Vineyards. I emailed Mount Eden to see if they had any work. And uh, you know, Ridge hadn't anything that they could offer me. And uh, well, Jeffrey at Mount Eden never even got back to me. Came later to realize he checks his email, or did at that point, about once a month. And so. <laughs> Well, I did hear back from him. It was after I was already leaving the country. <laughs> I, while I wasn't really having so much success finding a full-time job in Santa Cruz, I um, was also looking at kind of cool places where, where I could go work another harvest. And uh, you know, I was, was very focused on Pinot Noir, especially after really getting into Burgundy and learning a lot about that and tasting some amazing older Burgundies while working at Reese and thought, you know, like, Pinot, Chardonnay, these are amazing wines. These would be really cool wines to focus in on. Uh, I think I, I need to see what other parts of the US are making really good Pinot Noir. And obviously, Oregon is the, the place that identifies with it the most. And so I, I emailed around looking for yeah, just like a harvest up here in case my, my plan to go find a full-time job in Santa Cruz didn't come to fruition. And uh, so I, I had applied for a job at Antiquatera. And, 
I got an immediate reply back and Andrew scheduled an interview with me and offered me a job to come work Harvest in 2012, that fall. And uh, so I told him I needed a couple days to think about it, but I was really interested and I just needed to make sure that in those next few days for some reason I didn't get a, a permanent position somewhere else. And, uh, and of course I didn't, so I, uh, I signed up to work here at uh, in Etiquette in 2012 and, and that was cool. And, yeah, after I had agreed to that about three weeks later, Jeffrey from Mount Eden emails me back and says, yeah, hey, Phil, yeah, I think we've got a position for you, but uh, it won't be until harvest. I could probably use an extra set of hands, and then there's always vineyard work, you know, especially like December until about bottling time in the summer. So, yeah, maybe we can, uh, we can find something for you, but let, let's meet, and we'll talk when you get back from New Zealand. So I was kind of kicking myself at that point because I had just agreed to work a harvest, and... I emailed Jeffrey back and was like, I really want to meet you. Mount Eden is just amazing from the wines I've had and, and everything that I, I know about it from looking at it across the canyon and talking to some really educated guys who've been drinking a lot of these wines for a while. And yeah, that would be really exciting. I did just agree to work a harvest somewhere else, though. <laughs> I wish you would have emailed me about three weeks ago. And uh, he was really cool and just said, no worries. You should really go do that. They make some nice wines up there. and. Uh, I'm familiar with Antique Katera's reputation. Yeah, give me a shout when things are winding down, and I'll probably still have a job for you down here. So, yeah, I did. I, I came up here to Oregon and worked that harvest and was excited because then I could go back and work and get to know the vineyards on the Santa Cruz Mountains. Vineyard work is something I had never really done since that, that first harvest where I was taking crop samples and checking bricks and pH. So. Uh, yeah, from there I, I showed up back in Santa Cruz and sure enough, Jeffrey had a pair of loppers and shears in his hand and told me to come on December 1st and get started. I'd be working with the crew and uh, we'll just start me out there and see where things go. And yeah, I didn't really have another plan yet. And so I thought, oh, this would be fantastic actually. Like, I'm very excited. Uh, I know the reputation. I love the wines around Eden. And I know I've got a lot to learn from this guy because he's been doing it for a while. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. So from, uh, from Oregon, working that 2012 harvest, which turned out to be a really good one, really made some nice wines that year, uh, hopping straight back down to Santa Cruz, and uh, I started working in Mount Eden. And I knew at that point, well, I think my career can take off from here. I've, I've done a little bit of traveling harvest work, which I, I thought I wanted to do, and yeah, it was really rewarding. And uh, now I think this is gonna be like the first real step in my career. So before we talk about that, let's talk about Oregon a little bit. Um, what were your, you had, you had some things to compare it to at that point. You've been in New Zealand, you've been multiple spots in, in California. What were your impressions of Oregon and the industry at that point and of the wines in Anticatera, the wines you were, you, were, you were seeing and making? Yeah, I mean, stylistically, I think Oregon can fit in a lot of different boxes, but to cast a, well, a really broad net over everything. I, th I think that it makes just really nicely balanced Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Chardonnay with, with a nice acid profile, which is something that I definitely gravitate toward, but also a lot of riches, especially in warmer years. And 2012 was the only vintage I had seen and, and been around up here, and it was warm, and those wines were big. I mean, the fruit, I remember tasting tannin and tasting a lot of sweet fruit on the table as we were sorting. And, you know, working in Anticatera, there's a lot of sorting, and so you get to taste clusters, then you get to taste berries as they're coming off, and, uh, and it, was, it was awesome, and just standing across the sorting table from Maggie and listening to her talk about all the things she's tasting. Uh, 
really it made me see that there's a broad, a wide range of, of potential here. You know, she was getting fruit from all over the valley, and so starting to see like, oh, this is kind of what fruit from Shea Vineyard tastes like, and this is what fruit from the old Amity Hills tastes like, and uh, she was getting some fruit from, well, don't quote me on this, but I want to say outside of Corvallis, and it's neat to see it from a different part of the valley, and, and it was it was cool. So I, I was starting to get a, a pretty good sense of like, yeah, when I'm working with this fruit, and I'm in the winery, and tasting through all the ferments as we're checking them every day, because that's what you do when you're pumping over you know, 50 different tanks, you're gonna see what they all taste like and smell like. And uh, yeah, and so sampling those things and starting to, to make up uh, you know, a profile of Oregon in my mind, I started to see that, yeah, there's a lot of diversity here, which is what you need to make some, some interesting complex wines, especially when they're big blends and, and that there's a lot of potential there. And also these wines can be really pretty and really austere and have nice aromatics, especially in cooler years as I was tasting some different vintages of things while traveling around and visiting different wineries in this area and whatever free time I did have. And uh, certainly at, at lunches, you know, at the winery, we'd open a lot of different wines, or Maggie would, and it'd be fantastic. And Nate Reddy was the general manager at the time, and so him dipping into his cellar to showcase different blind tastings of, of areas was really cool. And uh, started to make me realize that there's a lot of potential up here in Oregon. I think this would be a really cool place to see grow as an industry and you know even 10 years ago it felt like it was much smaller than, than it is right now uh, so I remember thinking yeah there's, there's actually some really good wines from up here that you just don't even see really down in California I mean there's so many wineries that are all tiny and uh, yeah I, I think it could be really cool and Oregon seems like it's going to go some interesting places but at that point, just uh, having a base in Santa Cruz it was a really neat adventure for me at that time. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of Mount Eden being the sort of the, the jumping off point for, for a larger career. So tell me about your experiences there and, and starting from, you know, you come and do a little pruning work with the crew. Where, where did, what were the sort of the steps along the way as you sort of grew into your role there? Yeah, so I started out just uh, working in winter pruning and and that was coming to an end, I was, I was really fascinated by it. I mean, I keep a garden in my house, a kitchen garden, really enjoy having a little space where I grow organic veggies, and I got into that while I was going to UC Santa Cruz, like I think a lot of other people were. <laughs> and uh, at the time, my, my housemate, one of my best friends to this day, he was running an organic strawberry farm, so I'd go help him there sometimes. And, and I, I thought it was really cool, and it was a, a neat way to connect what, what I had been doing in wine to uh, well, the dirt and, and doing all the farming, which is something that I always knew was really important and, and had to be a, a huge part of the winemaking process. But through my, my travels in New Zealand and working down there and working in Napa, I, I think I hadn't had a fully formed opinion that, that it could be integrated into like the role of, say, a winemaker or something like that, because they were so segregated, where you know vineyard people do vineyard stuff and winery people do wine stuff. and. You know, the, the two don't cross until the grapes come in the door, pretty much, and at least that was my opinion at the time. And uh, so it, it was awesome, where I got to go and learn how to prune a grapevine, and then prune hundreds and, well, there's thousands of grapevines on that mountain. So yeah, working with a, a crew of six or seven other guys, and just uh, learning how it went step by step, and, and yeah, it, it was very cool.
And from there, I uh, finished up the, the pruning season and Jeffrey asked me if I would stay on and we would do some work in the winery and uh, the assistant winemaker there was someone I was starting to become friends with while working out in the vineyard with him. And yeah, he knew a lot, he had been a Davis graduate and let me borrow a lot of his books that he had used in school and was teaching me about some of the chemistry. And so, yeah, Sean, was, uh, Sean and Jeffrey were really mentors in a way and uh, it, it was great. And so it was talking to Sean about his studies there at Davis, which really got me thinking like, oh, okay, I need to go on and see what are these kids learning when they're in school there? Because I think this is where I can start to learn my background in the science of wine. And so figuring out a reading list for different courses, going out, getting those books from the library or ordering them online and just starting to learn the science of wine. And so it was working with them where I started to learn the basics of where I career would go from there. And, uh, and then I went and helped with bottling that season. So I got to see how a whole bottling line runs. And they have one in-house at Mount Eden. So that was cool. We would constantly stop to have to fix the machine. And I've always been decent with tools in my hands. So you know, I hold a flashlight or have to go get the right wrenches. And they weren't expecting much from someone they knew had never seen a bottling line before that point. And uh, yeah, I kind of fell into the role. I think that's something that I, I grew into really well and got to learn how the machine worked. And yeah, within the year, I was kind of helping when things would break on it or change labels or do those small things. And I was asked to stay on for harvest and told after the first harvest that I worked there, you know, I'd worked almost a whole year, starting with pruning, going all the way through receiving the grapes, like, hey, stick around, we, we want you here. And so I uh, was able to really fill into a role of like a seller hand and they made me a seller, the seller assistant was what my title was there. And I would spend about half the year working out in the field with a crew, learning how to grow vines and grow grapes and and we did a little bit of vineyard development where we put in about five acres. Just one of the hands on the ground helping to plot out and install irrigation and plant vines and all the intense work that goes along with that. Watching the machines that would be brought in to prepare the ground for planting. And it was, it was cool. It was a, a really good taste of how vineyards are started and looking at, you know, 40-year-old vine in a really old established vineyard, how they've continually been cared for to maintain their lifespan and really learning just how it gets to the point of being a really productive, healthy old vine that is making exceptional fruit and why the quality gets better with age. It's something I was doing with my hands and seeing right in front of my eyes. And that was, that was great. It was a very educational experience there. Yeah, so I ended up sticking around at, at Mount Eden uh, in that role for four years, the four seasons down there. At that point, splitting your year like that, did you find you had a, a preference between winery work, vineyard work? You know, I think I always envisioned myself being more focused in the winery. And I think the what sometimes can be a real repetitive job in the vineyard uh, wasn't something that I was super focused in on. I was really more curious about what was going on in the barrels and learning the wine science behind that, reading all these textbooks about fermentation. I wasn't reading as much at the time about vineyard science, but uh, I, I think that's where I was focused on at that point. And then the longer I worked there, the more I realized there's, there's no distinction. There shouldn't be. Like You have to know both equally well. And so that, that was what really solidified for me that to do this right, you've got to be farming your own vines. You have to be working the land and making the wine. There's, there's no 
more important side than the other. I mean, you have to be very good at both, really good at both. And so getting to do that is going to take a long time to learn. And uh, it'll probably be a lifelong process, really. But have the basics, know when things go wrong in the cellar and how you can fix them, and then let the wine sort of make itself from there. Know out in the vineyard that the vines are going to have the way they want to grow. You have to help them along. You know, Certain things you can't control. The seasons are what they are. And that's really what's neat about this industry that we all work in is that, yeah, any particular day, any week in the growing season can be something that can totally change how things end up for that particular vintage of wine. So you said you were there for, for four years. Uh, what was next? What kind of prompted the next step? Yeah, my plan was to keep working at Mount Eden for a while. I, I didn't have plans to leave, but my, my wife was starting to grow moss on her feet. She grew up in Santa Cruz, and uh, she really wanted to go and do some traveling or go live somewhere else. and. Uh, explore a little bit, and I was really hesitant because even though the commute was hell trying to get over to Mount Eden from Santa Cruz, it was an hour drive. We'd go up over the mountain, hit the Silicon Valley traffic in the morning, go up this two-mile long driveway to the top of a mountain every day. It was gorgeous and so worth it. I mean, I would look out on this beautiful valley and a sea of fog in the summertime just surrounded by vines. It's, it's dreamlike up there. And, it was really cool. I was enjoying every bit of what I was doing and thought, you know, there's, there's a, a lot I can learn from here no matter how long I stay. But um, yeah, she, she pulled me in the direction of, let's go see what else is out there. It's a big world, you know? There's, there's a lot of cool things. And she had lived in Seattle for a little while and really liked the Northwest and had been suggesting moving to Seattle for a while. and. I like it there and had visited once and thought it was really cool and uh, didn't know how I was going to keep working in wine. So there was a lot of negotiating going on and uh, you know I saw that there's Woodenville and they're making wine out there but really they're kind of just pouring wine out there and all the vineyards are five hours east and uh, so you know maybe we can explore other parts of the Northwest and as we were talking um, it, thrown Oregon out there. I mean, I had lived up here for a few months and she'd come to visit while I was up here. And yeah, it was, it was neat. You know, Portland's a very cool city. So we came up and visited Portland a couple of times and decided, well, you know, if we're going to go somewhere else, uh, my wife is a teacher, so she can basically work anywhere. But I'm a little restricted as to, to where I can go. I mean, if we're going to live in a city, we have to be close to farmland. And well, that doesn't happen everywhere, and it's got to be the right kind of farmland where they can grow grapes. So there wasn't anything on the East Coast, really, that I was interested in going to. I mean, growing up outside of DC, I had kind of left there for California thinking, I'm never going back East. I, I think I've found the side of the country I really enjoy living on. So yeah, we just started looking north. And, uh, and Oregon, having worked here, having seen it a little bit, she'd been up here, we decided, let's take some trips and explore, see if that's a place we want to go test out living. And, even if it is, you still have to convince me to leave Santa Cruz. <laughs> so yeah, we narrowed it down and thought, yeah, Oregon, Portland, these would be some really cool places to go. So let's think about it. Let's look around. It was about a year-long process of us talking and deciding if this is something we actually wanted to do. And um, so we thought about it for a while and started looking and decided, all right, you know what? Like, I'll go. Well, I, you know, I kind of have to. It's going to get to that point where I have to choose wine or relationships. So, yeah, I'm going 
I can, I can do wine a lot of places. And even though I don't want to do it anywhere else right now, like, yeah, I, I think I can do this. And uh, so she twisted my arm and, uh, and we moved up here. We came to Oregon. When was that? That was in 2016, yeah. And at that point I had been asking for advice on where to come work up here in Oregon. My plan was, uh, well, let's just come up, I'll, I'll work a harvest, you know, maybe we'll live here for a few months or a year. She got a teaching job, so she wanted to stay for a year at least and just see that through. And so talking to people I knew in California or had worked with and people whose opinions I respected about where I should come to work up here. And uh, so I emailed Jeff, the winemaker at Reese where I talked to you about, and I was like, well, you know, there's maybe a few places I think I would really recommend you go, but I actually have a contact at Archery Summit. Let me shoot him an email and see if he's got any harvest gigs open, and I'll get back to you. And yeah, about a week later, he had basically gotten me a job at Archery Summit working a harvest, and I thought, okay, this is a great place to bounce off from, and so uh, why don't I start there, and, uh, and then I'll, I'll see where things take me. I'll start making contacts up here in Oregon and, uh, and go from there, and so uh, only because it was just made so easy. I decided, okay, like, let me learn a little bit about Archery Summit. It seems like they're doing some cool stuff. And they have a really nice winery and a bunch of estate vineyards. Those tick a lot of boxes. You know, they're doing some long barrel aging. And yeah, that makes really nice wine. I hadn't had any of their wines at that point. And so when uh, we moved up here, I, I came and I toured the winery and saw what was going on. Thought, okay, this would be a really nice place to work a harvest. Let's, uh, let's see where, where this goes. And so, yeah, I met Chris, the winemaker at the time, and uh, yeah, he invited me to join on and met Eleni, the assistant winemaker at the time. She was from Santa Cruz and it turned out we had a bunch of mutual friends and acquaintances and so it just it felt right. So I went and worked there and uh, yeah, 2016 was my second harvest in Oregon. My, my first is an Oregon resident. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so while I was was up here after harvest. I taken some trips back down to Santa Cruz and went and visited Ellie and Jeffrey at Mount Eden and was having dinner with them. And I remember Ellie saying, hey, if you're looking for work up there, you should talk to John Paul over at Cameron because in 1986 or maybe 84, no, it must have been 84, uh, he came down here and he took multiple visits and flagged a bunch of our vineyard and he took cuttings from all the old vines and now he has them planted up at his vineyard in Oregon. And you know what? He makes really interesting wine. Just go pick his brain. I don't know if he has work. He's a really small winery, but man, he would be a great person for you to chat with. And well, I took that to heart. So I came back up here to Oregon. I was checking out different wineries around, trying to decide where I wanted to work up here and uh, emailed John and he got right back to me and said, anyone from Mount Eden or who's ever worked there, if I care, is welcome at my place. The best vines in my vineyard are from that, that place in California. And so, yeah, come on by and let's chat. And so I just stopped by to see what was going on over there because uh, I know certainly at that point, he definitely had an aura of unapproachability where it was like a black box and no one knew what was going on. And uh, if you had an in, you had to take it and at least just go see what's going on in that cellar because it's legendary. And so I said, yeah, sure. I'd love to just come by and see what you're doing there. And so I remember meeting John and talking to him for a little while and uh, I show up and showing me around the cellar, I come back upstairs and they're processing honey in the warehouse. <laughs> John and Terry, his wife, are avid beekeepers and they had a 
honeycombs and a spinning machine, and there's a woman who makes their handprinted labels who was there helping them because she's a beekeeping consultant for Cameron. And there was just, uh, yeah, it was like a ragtag crew just spinning honey, and everyone was getting tired, so they gave me a turn spinning this machine. So there I am, just kind of visiting to say hi and see what's going on at Cameron, and they're buying me tacos for lunch, and I'm spinning honey in a centrifuge. And, it's like, I don't know how I ended up here, but this is great. <laughs> this is a wonderful Tuesday, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I spent, I ended up being there a few hours and just kind of chatting and hanging out. And as I was walking to my car and saying goodbye to John, just kind of said, well, if you don't have any plans in the fall, come work for me this harvest. Get back to me if you're interested, bye. And <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, that doesn't happen every day. And, I don't think many people get to work here, so I, I should think about this and get back in touch. That, that's probably gonna be my hottest coal in the fire. And so, yeah, I uh, thought about it and emailed him the next week and said, I wanna go work for you. Yeah, can I please come back and work Harvest? I think that would be a really fun experience. I mean, I've only met you the once, but from what you tasted me in the cellar in those barrels, this is a really interesting wine, and yeah, I wanna see how it's made. I mean, I think this would be great. So tell me about that harvest experience. Uh, has that been 2017? Uh, let's see, that would have been 2017, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you've been in Oregon a little bit at that point. You've seen some things around. Obviously, Cameron, as you mentioned, very unique place. So tell me about going and actually working there. Yeah, so I, I showed up for harvest. and I'd been back just to say hi and visit and ran into John and Terry at a dinner one night that summer and was chatting with them. So yeah, we were starting to build a relationship and. I showed up there for actually bottling. Uh, they had asked me to come in and just help you need a third set of hands. So oh, day here, day there, I would uh, come and help them bottle the wines and leading up to harvest. And so I got to meet Tom, the now winemaker and uh, the vineyard manager at the time and spend a little bit of time with those guys and get to build a rapport. And, uh, and then harvest started. So we would I'll get together around nine, a very civil hour for harvest work day, and just like, this is amazing, I love it. We'd all sit down and eat lunch together. It's Terry or someone else would cook lunch, and uh, yeah, we'd chat for an hour, and then yeah, get back to work, and it would be sorting grapes and processing fruit and, and jumping in the tank to do a pijage, chest high, and yeah, it was just, a lot of fun. I, I had a great time. I'd be home for dinner most nights. It, they, they just had, John has just the right attitude about how you make wine and how you work during harvest. And it started to get a little bit harder when uh, the estate vineyard was starting to ripen. And so we'd show up, everyone would grab a bucket and a set of shears and you'd go out and we'd pick grapes for a few hours until we have about one fermenter's worth and then head into the winery, sort everything, process that fruit for the day. and. Yeah, and then we'd get a little bit of fruit in from uh, Abbey Ridge Vineyard and process that, and, and it, was, it was awesome. I mean, it was, everything I had learned was so important at Mount Eden, you know, farming your site and going out and picking all the fruit yourself and fermenting it and doing what you, you know, picking what you can process in a day, which was so important to me. I mean, when you pick a bunch of grapes and then just set them aside or leave them overnight or put them in a cooler, it's just not the same, you know? You need to be able to, handle what you can in, in one day's worth of picking. And we would just do it all there. It just, it really felt natural. I felt like that's what everything I had learned up until that point was, was telling me it was the, the right way you make wine. And yeah, it was awesome. 
So what about the end of harvest? What happened next? Yeah, at the end of harvest, uh, you know, John was like, oh, I'll have a little part-time work for you. Just help me out around here with pruning when that gets going. And so I was working a few days a week with him and trying to figure out my next step. And uh, I had, in that previous year while I was living in Oregon, but before I went to work for Cameron, sent out my resume to a few places. And uh, well, one of them was uh, working for Sterling Fox as a vineyard manager. That was the, the job. And uh, you know, months had gone past, and uh, we had chatted a little bit because he was just kind of curious who I was and curious about my background and working in Mount Eden. And uh, yeah, after harvest, he just called me one day and said, hey, I've got a vineyard manager job. That, that one we had talked about months ago, it's, it's open. And uh, well, if you're available, I'd love to have you come and work for me. I'll teach you what I need to teach you as we go. It's really just about managing people and learning where all your sites are and learning how to be efficient with your day. Uh, I'll give you a truck, and you just need to keep an eye on things and make sure nothing goes wrong, and I'll, I'll train you how to know what those things are. And so, uh, yeah, it was very busy from the jump. I uh, started there at the beginning of 2018, and I, I worked there for one full season, so coming on, pruning, and then going through all of the wintertime vineyard activities and then rolling into the spray season and the, the growing season, getting all the crews organized and helping move people and tractors around to the different sites that I was responsible for, which is the kind of northern side of the, the valley. It eventually grew into the, the northern part of the Dundee Hills, but principally around Newburgh area. So working mainly in the Shahila Mountains and uh, and learning how intense that business is. The, the vineyard management side is really something that involves a lot of logistics, a lot of timing, and seeing that when you can do this right, you can do a really good job at it, but it's not easy to pull off. I mean, you're at the whims of the weather, labor, logistics, moving people and tractors, and making sure everything is where it needs to be and having tasks done when they need to be done and how crucial it is to be incredibly organized and punctual and timely. So I was putting in a lot of hours that year, but also learning about how you manage a spray program. So we had uh, a guy on staff there who just would write all the spray programs for the company for the different sites, and that was his job, and just making sure chemicals were where they needed to be, tractors were there, checking in, just making sure that everything was ready to go, and so, you know, keeping your windows really tight. In California, and working at Mount Eden, I mean, disease pressure's pretty low. You can spray every few weeks. You can be a little less focused on when you start that program and when you end it, and, it's just not the same level of risk as we have here. So going from spraying a vineyard, I don't even remember how many times we did a Mount Eden, six to eight in a year, and not worrying too much about getting mildew and botrytis pressure, because it basically just doesn't rain from May until about November, uh, to here, where we're pruning in the rain, which I was always told in California, you do not do that. And you know, it would get a couple drops of rain on your head in the vineyard there, and everyone would pack up and go home. It was wild, and, and yeah, to hear where yeah you're wearing a slicker all winter and uh, you prune because if you don't prune in the rain, you're never going to get it done. <laughs> it just rains too many days a year, uh, and and learning like oh these are actually totally fine things to do. You just have to be smart about how you do them, and yeah, working with Sterling and getting coached along from him and the. Man, what a great resource that was. Learning all these different sites around the northern part of the valley and how they're all different was, was a great year. So it was really hard. I mean, 
and I was working a lot of hours every week, and then especially leading up to harvest. And uh, yeah, we uh, we were busy, constantly learning learning the requirements of that job was uh, yeah it, it was hard, and it was something that I really enjoyed doing. I got to put my years of Spanish lessons in college to work, and that was fun. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, leading a, a staff of people and speaking entirely in Spanish, and I had never done that before. It was a steep learning curve, but yeah, I, I was very comfortable with it by the end of that year, and uh, that was around the time I was starting to miss working in a winery. I mean, I, my whole harvest was outside that year. I hadn't touched a single grape, save for what was left on one of the vineyards that no one wanted, and I went and picked it over ripe and crushed it in my garage and made a little half barrel of wine because I just had to say I made at least something that year, you know? And then uh, John called me up and said, John Paul called me back and said, hey, our vineyard manager is leaving, and you've been doing vineyard management stuff since you were last year at Harvest, and we love working with you. Come back and be my vineyard manager. And I figured, well, I had a really good offer the first time, and I didn't see the need to turn that down. And this is not an opportunity anyone ever gets. So yeah, I got to say yes to this. And I went and talked to Sterling and said, You've been one of the most interesting people I've ever worked for, and you're a wealth of knowledge. And yeah, I've really enjoyed this, but I, I just don't think I can do it. I can't be away from the winery. Like, I, I like managing the vineyard. I really enjoy working with plants and being outside, but I, I need to also be inside a cellar. And what John had to offer me was, was that. It was spending the harvest inside, working in the winery, working with Tom, and Every other minute of the year when it's not that or bottling, I'm out working in the vineyard. And man, that's just like the ideal position I could have imagined from pretty early on in my career. So before we talk about that, I'm curious, you mentioned one of the things that Sterling said was that he would sort of teach you what to look for as you're keeping an eye on all these different vineyards. So given what you knew at that point, what, what did you, what was new about sort of seeing trouble in vineyards and, and knowing how to sort of mitigate it at that point. Yeah, I mean, spending a, a lot of time just following him around while he is pointing at every spot on a leaf that's going to be a mildew or, you know, maybe there's like mite damage, which I didn't know how to scout for at that point. And well, now I feel like I'm pretty well versed in because that's, that's one of the things we really have to look for, especially in the springtime, you know, mite damage in little growing shoots. and and. Him teaching me what the the risk factors are for growing vines in this region, the things that I just wasn't attuned to. Like, I knew how to look for things like eutypa because we had that at Mount Eden. I, I knew what powdery mildew looked like when it was totally covering a whole row of clusters. Like, I knew what damage to the vineyard from deer looked like. I knew some of these things, but him teaching me, like, oh, you know, we have a lot of deer around here, but for whatever reason, some areas aren't badly affected by it. Some are, and there's one site I was managing where the ownership didn't want to have a fence in place and showed up one day, and you know, I'd been there about a week before, there wasn't a lot going on at the time, and a deer, pack of deer had just, a herd of deer had just mowed down about four rows of the vineyard, and I mean, it was just a salad bar, and you know, how do we get around this? And Sterling had some ideas, and still the ownership was a little reluctant to put a fence in, and learning how to talk to people about what happens after a deer damages their vines when they you know, have only been a vineyard owner for a few years and don't know the full ramifications of what that is. And, uh, but, but really from Sterling, I mean, learning what the benefits of certain vine training is in this area, why certain spacings work really well for this area the way they do, and 
different types of grade and different soil types. And, uh, and really, even after all of those things, learning that most of it just comes down to what equipment is available and you know what's the, the best type of equipment for a given site. Like, how quickly does that soil dry out in the wintertime? So how big can your tractors be to drive over it when the ground is wet, you know? How steep is it? Um, these are huge factors in deciding what you want to, uh, or how you want to lay out your vineyard. And, and thinking about that in ways that I really hadn't before then. You know, what can you get for the right price in your area in terms of tractor equipment as a huge factor in how you orient your vineyard and how you space it, you know? Yeah, rootstocks, learning about the different rootstocks that thrive in this area. And even doing a little bit of, of trial, we were planning out a big vineyard project and uh, he put me in charge of sourcing all the vine material for that. And so talking to different nurseries for the, the vine sourcing for that site. I mean, like, I didn't know how you buy 40,000 vines before then. And he gave me all the resources to do it and said, like, you know, I'm working on a lot of things, so I'm gonna teach you how to do this, and then it's, it's up to you, send me the contracts, and I'll review them when they're ready. And yeah, so talking with nurserymen, finding out what they had in stock, you know, negotiating with them about what rootstock I'd been told I needed to have in the ground and what they thought would be good for it. And yeah, coming across uh, Sebastian at Sunridge, which was amazing. That guy, I love chatting with to this day. Uh, yeah, th those were, were really, really, helpful and, uh, and fascinating things that, that Sterling tasked me with while, while I was there. Yeah, but disease scouting, rootstock, uh, you know, what rootstocks work and don't in this area, just kind of by trial and error. I mean, he'd been doing it so long. Those are really important things I learned from him. Managing clients. Yeah. So when you got to, when you got to Cameron, obviously you had, a, you had a lot of experience at this point, but you never sort of had a space that you were managing or that you were you know, in, in charge of in that way. So tell me about stepping into that kind of role and what sort of first steps or initial goals were for you. Yeah, uh, really that first year is just learning from John the history of the vineyard. I mean, and not laid out in the linear ways per se. It was just sort of as the, the season went on and, and learning the the thought process behind why he had done everything he had done the way he did it at that vineyard because we have four different vine spacings and we have 11 different clones of Pinot Noir, six of Chardonnay. Uh, we also have Italianate varietals, red and white. We have Pinot Blanc. Uh, even within a certain section of the vineyard, although some of them can be spaced differently, they're also trained differently. We arch some canes, we lay some flat on the wire. And so learning what all of those things are, where they were, and mind you, this is an eight acre vineyard, was that, that was the, the big thing my first year, learning why John did things the way he did. And then also, you know, as my role has grown there over time, and helping him with uh, reestablishing sections of the old vineyard, which are uh, we're, we're losing every year slowly to phylloxera. And so, yeah, over time, I mean, it, it's grown into taking on all of those things and, and learning how to tweak uh, the spray program that was already in place to make it more effective and efficient as time goes on. And, uh, for the last two years, I've been participating in an or organic vine growers group and we share a lot of thoughts and information and, and research on uh, different organic products that are available and farm everything organically at the vineyard. We don't use herbicides and only Omri listed products for uh, any treatments we do on the vines. And so learning what works and you know how to do it really well. I'd done some of that with Sterling the year before and 
you know, learning that it was so crucial to time your sprays correctly. It was like one thing that was just drilled into my head there because coming from California where it was kind of no big deal to here where like it is so critical. You keep your windows tight between one spray and the next and that'll pretty much guarantee a successful crop. I mean, uh, yeah, having that in my head coming to Cameron and just working with John and seeing what products we're using, how can we do this better and you know, looking at research about it, talking to peers in that group and looking for resources, uh, a lot of which are published through uh, OSU and Patty Skinkis. Um, yeah, I mean, circling far back, I think, to one of your questions about what Oregon is like, I'll, I'll touch on this, is that the community here is very tight-knit and we share a lot of information. And so falling upon the relationships that I've made here and seeing you know, what people are using, where has been incredibly helpful in that role. Yeah. I'm curious about, from your time working in different vineyards, sort of what your, your sort of personal vineyard philosophy was when you came into Cameron and how, how you mesh that with what's already going on there. Did you, did you sort of seek to impart sort of, sort of what you wanted to do or was it more of kind of learning what had already been done and, and going along with that? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, I, th I think John's philosophy and, and mine coming into it are pretty aligned. I, I had a little taste of that, having worked at Harvest before coming into the role and uh, being a, a home gardener, doing everything organically and you know, you know, helping my buddy at an organic farm here or there when I was in college were certainly formative in, in my mindset about farming where I, I wanted to do everything organically. I mean. I think it's, it's really important to want to work around places you want to spend your time. And if we're spraying a lot of heavy chemicals, that's not somewhere I want to be hanging out, you know? And so being comfortable in that environment is step one. And so farming it the right way without using heavy synthetic fungicides or herbicides is certainly step one. And John is amenable to that, have been doing that for a while. and. Yeah, it felt like a good fit in that regard. And I don't necessarily know that I came in there with, uh, I mean, something I wanted to impart on it. How do you go to a place like Colectric with all the history it has and think you're going to make it better? I, no, I, I was humble enough to realize that's not going to be a thing that, one, is either going to work successfully or two, make John very happy. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think uh, my role here is to learn even more so why things are happening here the way they are and uh, to just take what's already in place and slowly make it better if I think I can even do that. You talked about the sort of, for a fairly small vineyard, all the different things going on, different clones, different rootstocks, different different um, uh, canopy and all of that. Tell me about getting to know the place. How, how has that gone for you? How do you feel like, how much do you feel like you know the place now? And uh, what's sort of left for you to discover? Yeah, so I think after about five years, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I, I can tell you which rows are which clones, and that took me the first couple years to memorize. I mean, really, we have everything tagged on the row posts, thankfully, so it makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, when you have 19 rows in one block of Old Vine Pinot Noir and 11 of them are, <laughs> there's 11 clones out there. It's, yeah, remembering the order in which they are was a challenge, but yeah, I'm there. Uh, and, by that second year, I was feeling more and more comfortable with it. And uh, so I think that was maybe the, the biggest hurdle is just uh, trying to 
figure out timing with workflow because we have so many different varieties and clones. They don't all break bud at the same time. They don't all flower at the same time. They don't all grow in the same manner because some are on rootstock and some are own rooted and uh, really just learning not to ask too much of the vines for what's out there. Uh, I mean, they're healthy, they're happy. They've been in that dirt for decades, almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, respecting that place has for sure been task number one. And uh, yeah, getting the lay of the land was my, my big hurdle the first year. And I, I feel like I've done that. And yeah, I mean, moving forward, tweaking things like realizing that the Nebbiolo is always going to be needing something before everything else does because it grows so fast in the springtime. I mean, I haven't seen anything like that up until this point in my career. And so going through and doing all of the kind of physical manual tasks in the Nebbiolo so that it's sort of out of the way. I mean, we can usually have that done by right around the time we're moving the first set of wires in the Pinot Noir. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's a different beast, and so, yeah, timing workflow has been one thing I do. A, a lot of the work hands-on with John's help and Tom, our winemaker, and uh, yeah, whatever other help we have around there at the time. And so being so hands-on in that role, it, it's been great at, at really learning all the intricacies of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's muscle memory at this point. So in the years you've been at Cameron, uh, what are some things you've uh, either accomplished that, that you're proud of? And what are some things you're sort of looking ahead to that you want to accomplish? Yeah, so I think uh, the second half of that question, uh, I've established a, a small row of rootstock nursery. So we do all our own grafting in-house, uh, which was also something I had never done until arriving at Cameron. I think it's so cool. We just do benchtop grafting and learning how to do that from John, who's been doing it for decades. And we have a little greenhouse that we use for propagation. And so learning all the steps for that was great. And so now having our rootstock material on site, I think will be helpful going forward. It'll take a few years to get that established, but being able to keep everything that we use you know, within the walls of the property is I think pretty important, you know, any, anytime you don't have to spend money on buying something you can just do yourself is gonna make it more efficient in the end. And also uh, a new challenge for me. I, I've never grown a rootstock vineyard before, but thankfully it's a little bit more forgiving. <laughs> I mean, worst case scenario, if it dies back to the ground, it'll pop right back up the same as it was. Uh, but I'm gonna do all my best effort to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else are you sort of looking ahead to uh, personally or professionally here? Uh, anything on the horizon that you're excited about? Yeah, I think professionally we're continuing to transition towards no-till farming uh, to greater and lesser success. It's been interesting learning about the different facets of the vineyard, some of which are receptive to it and some aren't, and figuring out how to make that work because of the benefits of carbon sequestration and, you know, minimizing our impact on the ground and the planet. Uh, I think those are really important things to consider when you're working on the land, but doing that as best we can at the, at Cameron, at Clo Electric is a really fun challenge, something that we've been doing the last few years and will continue to go do going forward. 
you know, things like incorporating more compost and organic matter into the ground in areas as we're transitioning away from cultivation is proving really important. I mean, there's visible signs. You can see when you stop cultivating a certain area, the, the vines respond to it and there's just, there's cues you can take. And so deciding, hmm, maybe this doesn't work here and we need to rethink how we're doing it. I, I think we can take another stab at it, but we need to change some of our, our things that we're doing, add more to the soil, give it a little bit more, make sure the vines are really happy before we start to take things away from them. And then if they start to flag or stress, you know, uh, react to that accordingly. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the less time I can spend on a tractor burning fuel, the better, right? The uh, more time I can spend helping to let the soil recover a lot of carbon, then the better that is. Yeah, I think working with a changing climate going forward is going to be a huge challenge and something that I look forward to, while also in my personal life trying to mitigate that, as I hope we all are, you know? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that, about sort of challenges. Obviously, you're, you're pretty young in your career still. You have, a, you have a, long, a long road, perhaps, in Oregon to look ahead to. So tell me about the, let's talk about the Oregon industry more, more broadly. What are the challenges you see coming for Oregon wine and what are the sort of the next steps for the industry? Yeah, I, I think maybe hearkening back to the answer to the last question, uh, I think climate change is going to be huge. I mean, we can see just in the last few years, we've had record heat. We've had smoke that encompassed this valley for almost a week. I mean, we've had really bad spring frost, the worst anyone can remember. That's just in the last three years. I mean, what does the future bring? I, I think climate change is going to be our biggest hurdle in farming. I mean, in so many facets of all of our lives. But, but yeah, in the wine industry, how we react to that, that's going to, be, that's going to be our biggest challenge going forward. And then as far as how the industry is changing, just the, the influx, I think, of, of corporate interest in the wine industry. Or I, I see that driving and also changing the nature of this industry. I think that it's for the better in some ways. I mean, with all of this investment, with all of this outside uh, interest coming into Oregon, it brings with it new technology, new ideas, new blood. These are things that are going to help us grow and get more successful as time goes on. Now, with the, there are challenges with that as well, but I mean, on, its on paper, I think it's largely a good thing. You know, competition never hurts. To go back to the last question for a moment, you talked about obviously climate being the, the biggest challenge. What are you seeing right now from the Oregon industry as it's sort of looking at that? How, how, is it, how is it approaching it? And do you see, what are the results you see or hope to see from the, the sort of the measures being taken? Yeah, I think it's a more reactive approach. I mean, I think it's hard to be proactive about something that we don't have a full understanding of how it's going to end up, or really even how it's going to be from year to year. But uh, I mean, obviously trying to minimize carbon inputs in agriculture is a pretty carbon intensive process or, or industry. And uh, a lot of the things that we do out in the vineyard, they contribute to it. And so just being mindful of that. If we want to continue making wine, we're going to keep putting carbon in the atmosphere. There is no way around that. But doing it as intelligently and as efficiently as we can, you know, mitigating it as best we can, those are going to be pretty important things going forward. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? 
No, not that I can think of, Rich. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming down, sharing your stories with us, taking the time to be part of our project. And I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.